I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about our upcoming 2020 election security, I've asked Josh Geltzer, who is a law professor and legal scholar at Georgetown University, former senior national security official in the Obama administration, former law clerk for Justice Breyer, and now serves as part of the cross-partisan National Task Force on Election Crises. Josh, can you tell us what the National Task Force is and why it was created? Absolutely, Andrew, and thanks for the chance to join you today. So this task force reflects concern that our elections, the sanctity, security of those elections are facing unprecedented threats. This is a group that has different views of politics, of particular politicians, but what we share is a profound belief that Americans are entitled to voting and to elections that yield a result that reflects their will and that is not distorted. And so the group of more than 40 experts transcends any particular area of expertise. We have folks who know election law, who know national security law, who know voting rights law, who know public health law and media law. All of those areas have at least the capacity to face unusual threats in the upcoming election season. And we've come together to try to offer advice on how to address those threats. And so who are some of the people? You call it cross-partisan. So I'm assuming that means there's Republicans, there's Democrats, there's independents, there's people of different political persuasions. Tell me who's on the task force. That's absolutely right. So we have folks who probably are seen on the left, folks like Kristen Clark or Vanita Gupta. We have folks who are probably seen as being on the right, like Michael Chertoff. We have folks for whom politics is not so much their self-identifying feature, but technological expertise is, cybersecurity expertise is. And that's all by design. It's designed so that whatever the type of crisis we feel we can offer some guidance on, whether that's voting when there's a pandemic still raging or perhaps about to resurface, whether that's voting in the face of attempts to spread disinformation about the vote itself, as we saw in 2016, and for that matter, in 2018, and as we anticipate seeing in 2020, or whether that's voting with concern that the votes will be changed because of hacking once they're actually cast. All of that, we feel we can offer something useful because we're not about politics, but we are about trying to ensure the integrity of the voting and election process. So you all just put this commission together in March of 2020. It's obviously pressing. We've got this election coming up. And even though you guys are a cross-partisan group, this is becoming increasingly a partisan issue. You've got House Democrats putting forth a new bill last week that is intended to address issues like mail-in votes. Um, You've got Republicans on the other side saying that that's an effort 
by Democrats to fix the election. So we're all over the place on this. And it seems like heading into the 2020 election with all the problems you just described that we have to face from external actors, we're not doing ourselves any favors here. So what are you guys looking at to really get at this set of problems? It's sad, but unfortunately right, that this issue of voting in the United States seems in the hands of certain politicians to be getting turned into a partisan issue. One would think that the voting comes first. Yeah. And then whom you vote for is the the political issue. But of course, that's not where we are. Instead, we have a president who, despite voting by mail himself, has declared himself utterly opposed to, utterly resistant to uh, voting by mail, even when it seems that uh, conditions might mean that that's the way to ensure participation this November at the scale we're accustomed to. And even when there is negligible uh, indications, if any, that voting by mail leads to fraudulent voting or the sort of concerns that nonetheless our president keeps insisting are associated with voting by mail. And as you said, does transcend President Trump himself, unfortunately. It's become a bit of a, a party divider uh, on the Hill and elsewhere across the country uh, when it shouldn't be. And so We may not be able to change the full rancor of the current state of American politics and essentially what appears to be a gamble by one political party that if it is to maintain or increase its power, it's going to do so by stopping certain people from voting. But what we can do is offer advice to those responsible for carrying out, administering those elections that isn't political, that is purely dedicated to protecting the integrity, sanctity of those elections. And so already we've begun to issue what we hope are accessible papers that reflect the type of expertise uh, I mentioned earlier. We've put out one that talks about and tries to set the record straight on what it would mean to postpone the November elections, to debunk what is essentially the, the myth that sometimes spreads that the president, for example, alone could change the date of of voting in November. We, we try to articulate what has to happen before, during, after November, and on January 20, and what the authority is specifying all of that, from the Constitution to federal statutes to other uh, rules and, and guidelines. And so offering that type of objective analysis, coupled with best practices and advice, is where we hope we can wade into what is admittedly a partisan topic, unfortunately, and offer not partisan guidance and advice. So there's a lot to break down here, but let me first ask you, are there emergency powers that a president can take to postpone an election? So a president alone cannot postpone the election. That that date is something set by federal law, therefore would require the participation of, of Congress. But in some ways, this issue gets more complicated when one asks the question at a little bit higher level of generality, such as if the president were to attempt to mandate or even leverage his influence with certain governors across the country to mandate certain things that could affect voting in November, what would that look like? So if, for example, those governors who tend to do the bidding of President Trump were to mandate that for pandemic-related reasons, for example, there needed to be extraordinary space kept between human beings, uh, essentially, well, that would surely affect what voting looks like. It would affect voting lines. It would affect the ability to process people as they attempt to vote, which already is in a sorry state in various parts of the country. And we all saw this even during the primary season, which tends to have lower turnout uh, with extraordinarily long lines that not just, uh, they don't just create nuisances for people. They actually lead some people to be unable to vote. They just can't afford to stay in those lines. So could a president 
do something to complicate, for example, voting on November, even if it stays on the same date in November, a president could try. And that's where we hope some of the guidance that would call out that as impermissible or at least uh, unfortunate or guidance as to what can be done to make that not a problem for voting, such as using mail-in ballots, that's where all that can become useful, we hope. Now, the president is opposed to mail-in ballots. He said this many times. But other Republican governors like Mike DeWine of Ohio, for instance, are not opposed to mail-in ballots. What is the primary concern with mail-in ballots? It seems that at least President Trump's stated concern, which is not borne out by the facts, I don't know whether he holds it sincerely or not, but it is it is not grounded in data, is that that somehow yields fraudulent voting. But this notion, really myth, of fraudulent voting has been something Trump in particular has brought up in a few contexts, none of which is actually borne out by the facts. So here I in particular have in mind his repeated claim that there was all sorts of illegal voting in 2016 that cost him the popular vote, which you'll recall he actually lost by approximately 3 million votes, even though he won the Electoral College vote. And he went so far as to put together the Pence-Kobach Commission. So it was co-chaired by Chris Kobach of Kansas and Vice President Mike Pence to explore the purportedly fraudulent voting across the country. Well, that commission, as it attempted to suck up data from states around the country in the face of opposition from not just blue governors, but also some red governors and and election administrators as well, eventually had so many legal complications and concerns associated with it that the White House was forced to disband it. That's actually what the White House said in the statement disbanding it, that there's been so many legal attacks on it that it's easier to just ditch it entirely. But motivating it was this notion of fraudulent voting, even though the data before the commission was assembled and any data that the commission appeared to be assembling in its early days failed to bear that out. That seems to be the same myth that the president is trotting out here. But as uh, as you say, Andrew, the very fact that governors across party lines utilize mail-in voting without seeing concerns about fraudulent voting suggests that it's not a accurately based concern on the president's part. So when you guys have examined the data, what does the data actually show? Like, is it very clear that there's no fraud? I would just phrase it ever so slightly differently in an attempt to be as cautious as possible. The data show that there have been essentially negligible identified cases of fraudulent voting, whether that's by mail-in ballot or at the polls. And to the extent one crops up here or there, uh, it gets waved around as an illustrative case, but it's not. It's an outlier case. And until there's any data suggesting that there's that there's a real risk to the sanctity of our elections, the benefits sure seem to outweigh the downside because the benefits, even in normal times of mail-in voting, are tremendous. They allow people who can't get to the polls because of sickness, because of the need to be at work, because of the need to care for relatives or friends. It facilitates voting a whole lot more than it uh, undermines it. And that, of course, seems particularly likely to be true if, as we get to November, there is, to some greater or lesser degree, still the difficulties associated with living with coronavirus that we're all experiencing across the country right now. Josh, why is it so hard in this country to vote? For instance, why don't we have a national holiday on Election Day? This is something that academics, including Bruce Ackerman at Yale Law School, have pushed for. He wrote a whole or co-wrote a whole book about it. It's something that some states appear to be uh, embracing. And culturally, I think it's important, in addition to what it might mean for the actual participation on Election Day, I think it would speak to what a responsibility and privilege it is to get to choose 
one's own leaders, one's self-governance as we live in a democracy. But to go to the first step of your question, which is why don't we have that? I'm not sure we have a, a good answer. I think the traditions in this country are unfortunately that voting, as much as it's a, a privilege and a responsibility, is also a tool for political fights. The history is not a totally happy one. It is one in which people have tried to exploit and abuse the voting system to have the outcome they want rather than to facilitate a true exercise in self-governance. And that's where I worry some of the most politically charged efforts to resist mail-in voting or the most politically charged efforts to institute voter ID requirements at polling stations, even though the data don't seem to suggest they're necessary, they seem to reflect a tradition in which there's a calculus made that manipulating voting is better for desired outcomes than actually letting democracy do its thing. And the hope is that over time we creep towards a world in which letting democracy do its thing becomes more and more what voting looks like in this country. But there's candidly a long way to go. I mean, our voter participation rates are quite frankly, embarrassing when you look at the way the rest of the free world participates in elections. I mean, we have less than 50%, I believe, of our voting eligible population participating. How can that be? You know, I think part of it goes to some of the difficulties you rightly identified, Andrew, the fact that when, when the day rolls around, people need to go to work. They need to take their kids to school. They need to care for ailing relatives. Don't want to stand in line for three hours. They don't want to stand in line for three hours or they can't afford to because if they wait long enough, they're going to be docked pay at work. They're going to miss that pickup of a child from daycare or school. Uh, and a lot of people in this country barely get through ordinary Tuesdays with all those things weighing down on them, let alone adding three hours to a Tuesday to wait in line and to vote. Now, that sense of when things are going well, voting participation goes down uh, because people are essentially roughly satisfied with the status quo, even if they grumble about the particular politics of the moment, suggests that in that things are not necessarily going well in the view of many of us around the country. I mean, the, the sheer number of deaths that, that America continues to suffer from the pandemic suggests something is not going well. As awful as that is, I think my hope is that something good comes out of it and that one of the good things that comes out of not just the mismanagement of the pandemic by the federal government and other parts of our, of our governance system, but also some of the other problems of the past few years is that it reinvigorates American sense of going out to the polls and voting being a, a critical way to help determine our country's future. But every cycle, you're right, Andrew, the, the, the numbers here don't stack up with what they are in, in at least certain other countries around the world. And part of the goal of our politics, one would think, would be to get those numbers up, whatever result that might yield. But that's not how everybody in our political system thinks about it right now. What are some of the particular issues that COVID is going to visit upon this upcoming presidential election? I think administering the actual vote on election day is the biggest because that takes a lot of work. Our system is a patchwork. It is run by design by states and within states, by counties. And once you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's run often by volunteers at the polls on election day itself. And that requires some training, that requires assembling a lot of paper materials, it requires moving ballot machines around the country, all of which requires a lot of effort and doesn't work perfectly, even in the best of times. We all read about ballot machines that are broken, there's no technician in that county, in that 
polling district or precinct available to fix it, or at least not before hours and hours of backlog of would-be voters waiting in line builds up. But all of that is harder right now, where for a bunch of valid reasons, we are trying not to move things all around our state. We're trying not to have in-person trainings. We're trying not to bring people close to one another uh, to try to keep all of us safe and to try to limit the drain at any given moment on our healthcare system. And certainly election day itself tends to pack people close together. And so the sheer physicality that is still associated with voting is to me the, the biggest challenge we face right now. I'll mention one other thing, which is the amount of disinformation that has spread online in the course of COVID-19 about COVID-19 is extraordinary and rather disheartening. It's particularly disheartening given that tech platforms and the government in working with them had pledged that they were better poised for the 2020 election cycle to deal with the problem of disinformation. And maybe they are, and maybe they're particularly focused on political disinformation. But to the extent COVID-19 was a bit of a dry run, I'm not sure it can be heralded as a great success story because there's been a ton of dangerously misleading things that have circulated widely before they were flagged, stopped, otherwise halted, at least as much as possible, by the platforms that get such widespread use these days. And even conversations about COVID-19 are serving the function desired by the Russians and others of polarizing and dividing Americans. And if that's the trend that continues into the 2020 election cycle, it suggests that not only have we made things better in the democracy disinformation space from 2016, but in fact, in some senses, they may be worse. One thing that has occurred to me, especially as you were just talking about it, regarding the difficulty of getting people to the polling places and the health challenges they're going to face there, is a lot of our election officials at the polling places are elderly people to begin with. So they're going to need to be replaced with younger people who are going to need that training that you spoke about. And then there's the matter of you know, older, more immune compromised people in our society who are going to be scared to go to the polling place to vote if they can't do a mail-in vote, it really could lower participation. It could, and it can not only lower participation overall, but it can skew participation. As you say, the threat posed by COVID-19 may change who volunteers, who votes, because uh, the risk uh, that the virus poses depends a bit on your age, pre-existing conditions. And you know, I've seen some folks beginning to puzzle through, if that's the case, which political party or which presidential candidate that might help. But frankly, I don't care which political party or, or candidate it helps. I don't want that skewing to happen at all. Americans who should want to vote and those who want to vote and are eligible to vote should be able to vote. And I don't want that result skewed by the fact that we're facing a a lethal pandemic in any particular direction. And so trying to get in front of that is what I think you see happening with the push to utilize mail-in voting, uh, among other things. Even early voting, if it's not mail-in, at least spreads out, distributes people going physically to polling stations in a way that would be helpful if the goal is social distancing, not total isolation, but social distancing. Because it shouldn't reflect the results in 2020 or any particular year shouldn't reflect a skew caused by some who are too fearful, really, for their life to go out and vote. It should reflect the polity as a whole. Have you ever experienced an election of any kind or know of any election in history that has faced this many challenges? <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of what candidates themselves tend to say every election cycle, that 
this is the most important presidential uh, sure. election in, in, in your lifetime. And uh, I happen to think that probably that statement is true this go around, because I do think some of the undermining of the rule of law and bad policy choices made by Donald Trump over the past three and a half years would really, really become aggravated if there's another four years of them. That's my own, I guess, political sensibility. But Donald Trump aside, you know, the, the challenges to actually pull. Yeah, the challenges to actually pulling this election off right. seem really difficult. And I know they're not insurmountable, but all of this seems like it's a recipe for nobody being happy with the result. It does seem that it is a perfect storm of factors that will at least increase the difficulty level, increase the challenges associated with this election. Now, maybe there's an upside to that. Maybe if, if there can be found the political will, and even if it's not on Capitol Hill, maybe it's in some states, ideally all states around the country, to accelerate the push for fixes that a lot of us would have thought worthwhile even without this pandemic. The idea that this could be the thing that leads to greater voter access, to greater ease of voting, not only this year, but in a way that's sticky, so to speak, that is put in place and then remains in place for future years, that would be something good to come out of something that seems pretty challenging right now. But there are a lot of threats, for sure. And when the, the task force that we were discussing earlier, Andrew, was first getting stood up, COVID-19 wasn't what we were thinking about. We were thinking about a president who might wield the instruments of national power to distort the election itself, or might not accept a loss that many of us would consider an objective loss at the polls. We were thinking about permutations of what we all saw in 2016, from the spread of disinformation on social media to potentially attempts by hostile foreign actors or even domestic actors to actually hack and change either those who appear to be on the voter rolls or votes cast. So to add on top of that, a pandemic, there's a lot. There's a lot. Have you found any particular vulnerabilities in any specific states yet? Or are you looking that closely at states? Is there a disparity state to state? Sometimes we hear, you know, maybe one state is more secure than a next state. There is a disparity. And that disparity is always changing in part because states, some of them, are adapting or, or updating uh, their systems. But to give, you know, one example, Georgia had a database, a voter database that seemed particularly cyber vulnerable at one point. This became an issue during the last gubernatorial race there, the Kemp Abrams race. Those who have electronic voting machines at the polls that don't have paper backups, I think are still generally thought to pose a distinctive vulnerability because if things go wrong, it's very hard to figure out, A, that they definitely went wrong, and B, what the right result should have been. So there are states that have put money into this problem, and I mean that in a good way, that have tried to invest in machines that have paper backups, that have tried to update their electronic voter databases to make them less vulnerable to hacking. But what we saw is the government, the media shared information about 2016 was that the Russians probed those sorts of electronic systems across states. And they didn't just probe them in states that we as Americans might think of as battleground states. They, they probed them in Maryland, which was pretty clearly going to be a blue state, at least so far as the president was concerned, has a Republican governor right now, but was going to go blue in the uh, Trump-Clinton contest. And if you think, why? Why would, a, why would a Russian hacker invest in probing 
the systems of a state where the result seemed preordained, to me, at least one of the answers is the goal is to undermine confidence, ultimately. Now, the intelligence community said the goal in 2016 was also to help get Donald Trump elected, so you don't need to choose between these. But you zoom out, the persistent goal on the Russians' part seems to be to undermine confidence, Americans' confidence in their own democracy, and Russians' confidence in democracy as a system so that they cease to push for it at home or have uh, undermined when they do so. And for that, it doesn't take changing a lot of votes. It doesn't take changing votes in a battleground state. It takes showing some sort of mischief that leads all of us as Americans to fight over our system and whether it's working. And that seems to be a persistent goal of the Russians, to get us to have exactly that fight. Joshua Geltzer, you're doing important work at Georgetown. You're doing important work on the National Task Force on Election Crises. Thank you so much for being here today and helping us get to the truth of the matter on this very complex issue. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 